You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. On this episode of Radio Free Humanity, we are celebrating the new Spanish edition of our co-host Andrew Kleiman's book, Reclaiming Marxist Capital. The original English version was released in 2007, but now, in 2020, you can read the book in Spanish. Joining us today is Guillermo Murcia Lopez, who, along with Antonio Dorado, was one of the translators of the book. Guillem, Andrew, and I will be discussing the book and its relevance now for theory and practice. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In a few minutes, we'll be talking about the Spanish edition of Reclaiming Marxist Capital. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So it's been a quiet week in Lake Walbagon out in the prairie. Yeah, where all the presidents are above yeah. average. <laughs> That's my only cultural reference point for Minnesota. So <laughs> it's my only Minnesota joke I can make. So events are unfolding so rapidly and dramatically here in the U.S. that it is hard to make sense of what is happening and where things are headed, uh, whether it's descent into chaos or ascent into something new. We don't know. But uh, Marxist Humanist Initiative was able to put together an, an editorial that came out today, June 2nd, and I think it's pretty good. It gets to some of the essential issues at stake in this protest. So our plan for this podcast is just to move through the sections of the editorial and use that as our guide for discussing the, uh, the, the uprising. Yeah, the title of the editorial is U.S. Explodes with Protests Over Police Murder of George Floyd. And the first uh, section of the piece is entitled Mass Interracial Solidarity Against Police Violence. And it points out that one of the things that really differentiates this movement from the urban rebellions of the 1960s is its interracial character, something we didn't see a lot of in the 60s. Right. In Detroit, uh, 1967, there, that had a white-black you know, character. Uh, that was different, though. Uh, in, in the main, it was not that way. But what I, I've been seeing is a lot of white youth, people of all races, young people, who really know what the cops are about and really loathe the cops. It's not just a black thing that you wouldn't understand anymore. Yeah, and that's one of the aspects that's made this protest movement much more threatening to the powers that be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, in, it's in the second paragraph. This is one of the takeaways of one of the main documents of Marxist humanism, pamphlet American Civilization on Trial, written by Ryudinevskaya at the time of the original 1963 March on Washington. And it puts out a lot of history, and the, the point of the history of, of the U.S. is that pivotal moments of forward movement in the U.S. have always been those moments when white working people took their lead from the black masses and coalesced with them. So so it's not it's not it's like it's not just a casual observation or a slogan or something it's based on a real assessment of 
the role of black activism at the the vanguard of forward movement in U.S. politics. Right, and and that's, like it or not, that's critical because black people are a minority in this country. So unless we manage to have a substantial core of, of white people who forsake at some level the white privilege, reject white supremacism, that puts a damper on everything that, you know, strangles uh, forward movement. The other main takeaway from, from the pamphlet is that racism is the Achilles heel of U.S. civilization. I mean, it prevents this really from being a civilized country. Uh, as Gandhi put it, you know, Western civilization is a wonderful idea. You know, I'd like to see it. <laughs> and we're, we're seeing that play out in the streets. But when you get white working people coalescing with the black masses struggling for freedom, then you, you can really go, go somewhere. And, and, and that's where we're at right now. I mean, I'm not uh, predicting that this is going to go upward and onward. I'm not predicting it's going to be crushed mercilessly. You know, some of both is happening right now. But, but that's what it's going to take. The second part of the editorial is called Cops Not Invincible. And I really appreciated this part of the editorial. I think it put into words something I hadn't quite all put in, together in my head yet. And that was the way the protesters storming and, and burning down of the third precinct in Minneapolis on May 28th, the way that seemed to have acted as a catalyst for uh, spreading this movement all around the country. Um, you know, in my whole life, I had never imagined I would see uh, protesters take over a police station and set it, turn it, set it on fire. I've always, you know, in protests and other places, I've always seen the cops as this, like, insurmountable mass of weaponry and technology and intimidation. And and sort of, you know, basically a bunch of armed thugs that can do whatever they want and with no accountability. And here you had, uh, for the first time I can ever remember, um, this people who pierced through that aura of invincibility and showed the world that these cops are not um, invincible. And that seemed to have inspired people all over the, the country to take to the streets. I've seen one mention of this part from the, the MHI editorial, but I mean, that's the way it struck me. And I just sort of said, God, it's got to strike other people the same way. It struck you the same way, correct? Yeah, it was incredible. It immediately reminded me of the protest movement in Hong Kong last summer, where the all those young people stormed the parliament building and where they were live streaming from inside the parliament and the whole world had this idea this image of this, you know, that the Communist Party of China had been sort of put on notice that they were not invincible. You know, people begin to take heart that uh, not only can you struggle, but, but you can win. The next part of the editorial is called Trump Racist in Chief, and it briefly describes some of the predictably horrible responses that Trump has had to this movement so far and also tries to contextualize the movement a little bit within what's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic right now and the gross racial disparities that have been exposed by this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, this is not like something that we see in terms of like signs that people are holding or, you know, when they get interviewed, they're very much focused on the, the issue of police violence and, and the racial uh, inequality more generally. But we're in a situation right now where <laughs> really at a mass level for, for the first time in a very long time, there are lots of people with nothing to lose. Everything's been taken away from them already. Right. And people are now being asked to do this total about face. They made all these sacrifices. They lost their jobs. They dealt with all this quarantining and dr drama for months. And now governors and the president is just saying, 
okay, we're all back open for business as if it's somehow safe, but it's not safe. And then people are wondering, why were we, why do we make all these sacrifices if it's not safe? And they feel compelled to go back to work, even though it's not safe there. There was an about face done. Okay, so Trump wanted to look the other way, do nothing. But then it, it became worse and worse, and they began to listen to the experts, impose social distancing, recommend social distancing. But it still gets worse. The, the, the right-wing media and all this pushing back, and it becomes clear that it's hitting immigrants in, in meatpacking plants. It's hitting the, the, the black population. It's hitting the cities. It's hitting the, the blue states. And they say, like... The hell with it. We're not going to be able to contain this thing anyway. So let's snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and say the key thing is to get the economy back to work. Obviously, they got the CEOs of companies screaming and yelling about that at the same time. So they, they did an about face. Okay. And, and, and what they've basically tried to do is to just like ignore this, get us off of it, and to basically tell people in, in, in sometimes no uncertain terms that you have to sacrifice your life, you have to risk your well-being for the good of the so-called economy. Absolutely disgusting stuff, like former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, saying, you know, people were willing to sacrifice in World War II to defend our way of life. I mean, whether you like World War II or not, what what that references to is a, a war against fascism, okay? It, it isn't, it's not spending, you know, to put money in, in the hands of corporations and drive up stock prices. It's a very different way of life that he's talking about. From, from that, it was absolutely disgusting. And now people are being told they have to go back to work or they'll lose their unemployment benefits, but it might not be safe to go to work. It might not be safe to get on the train to go to work. Yeah, this is forced labor. This is forced labor. So so people are out there protesting police, police brutality, but there are a lot of other things people are pissed off about right now. The next part of the article is called Charging the Minneapolis Cops, and it talks about how while at first there were no charges against any of the police officers, the day after the precinct building was burnt down, all of a sudden we saw the first charge against uh, Officer Chauvin, third-degree murder charge. Obviously, people are still pissed and they want a first-degree murder charge. They want the other cops um, tried as well. But, um, you know, if there hadn't been a movement, if there hadn't, people hadn't been out there in the streets, we might not have seen any action at this point. Yeah, that, that third-degree murder charge is really pathetic because third-degree murder carries a much lighter sentence, and the reason is it's not a charge of premeditated murder, you know. This clearly was premeditated murder in, in the legal sense, not not that the cops got on the scene and say, okay, let's kill this guy. You don't need that for premeditation. But getting a, a premeditated murder conviction against cops is, like, almost impossible, and and that's the reason that the, the prosecutors didn't go for it is because they didn't think that they could get that uh, conviction, and cl- clearly that's that that's the issue. And and e- even people who are you know on the, on the side of racial justice are saying, well, this is a good decision on their part because it's, it's really hard to get a, a conviction uh, on premeditated murder for for the cops. It, and e- even even what they've charged them with, you know, when we see all the evidence, the nine minutes, even this is not a slam dunk case. But this is what makes it so pathetic. Is you know how little people are willing to settle for. The next part of the article is called Police Riot, Trump Flees to Underground Bunker. And it talks about this crazy escalation of police violence and rioting that we've seen over the past week as 
cops have responded to this perception of their own weakness with increased brutality, but it seems to be backfiring on them this time because now the whole world is watching, as the article says, and all over the internet and everyone, we're, everyone's watching these videos of police doing crazy, irresponsible, violent things in response to peaceful protests. What you've gotten to is is the irony that then gets pointed out in the in the in the next paragraph. They're they're losing in a certain sense. Not only are they losing like the third precinct station and and, and some of the, the the fights on the ground, they're losing in the eyes of the world because the, the image of like the cops are your friends and here to protect you. It's they're here to protect something and some people, but they're they're not our friends, right? They are not our friends. People people can see this now. Everybody can see this. So they're losing. And so how do they respond to the fact that they are being now perceived correctly to be brutal thugs? They, they, they up their brutality and thuggishness, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is their MO. This is the only thing they know how to do is to escalate things and use their weapons and be a bunch of thugs. The last section of the piece is called An Entire Generation Radicalized Within a Week. And it talks about how over the course of seven days, this interracial youth movement has arisen with the youth in the vanguard here. Yeah, I, I mean, I got a sense in particular from what our friend in Brooklyn was saying that there were people who were not only outraged, but also surprised, you know, shocked by the enormity of the police violence uh, un unleashed on them. That has, you know, a tremendous radicalizing effect because there's, there's no way more sure to understand capitalism as a system than to see a system coming down on you. And that's what it is. It's not this cop or that cop right it's, it's it's the system and 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 people can make connections f from that so you know and 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 people do not like being tear gassed and, and and shot with rubber bullets and driven through with suvs and stuff like that so whether we win or lose right now there's going to be a price to be paid yeah even if this movement gets crushed by the military or something an entire generation is going to remember this moment of power and of the real weakness of the the cops and the powers that be and the power of movements of people on the streets taking charge of their own lives and demanding a better society. It's, people are not going to forget that. Well, that's all the time we have for this current events section. Up next, we talk about the Spanish edition of Reclaiming Marxist Capital. We're very pleased to have on the podcast today uh, Guillem Murcia Lopez, who is the co-translator of the just-released Spanish edition of my 2007 book, Reclaiming Marx's Capital. And he's going to talk about the translation process and political implications, perhaps, for Spain and so forth. Um, I don't feel qualified to say the Spanish title and subtitle, but maybe, Guillem, you can uh, render that for us. Yeah, well, hello, very pleased to be with you. Uh, the Spanish title is uh, Reivindicando el Capital de Marx, Una Refutación del Mito de Su Incoherencia. Well, Guillaume, thanks so much for being with us today. It's great to have you on the podcast. We're excited about the uh, this new Spanish edition of the book coming out. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, what the possible reception for the book might be? You know, what is the political situation in Spain? Are people looking for a book like this? Do you think there's an audience for a book like this? What kind of impact might it have? 
Yeah, well, I think it is relevant because I think interest in Marx has been increasing, at least in, in Spain, and I would say that also in, in Latin America, especially since the, the Great Recession. And it's also something that has been attracting people because younger, especially uh, younger people, are becoming more aware about the challenges that are being uh, brought up, like global warming. So it is relevant because it addresses accusations that have been have been made against Marx uh, theory for a lot of time. There is discussion of Marx Marxist ideas in Spain. There's a lot of people. It's just coming from different perspectives. You have people like Professor Xavier Arritavalo, who invited Andrew a few years ago. Uh, that's when I met Andrew actually when he came to Spain. Uh, he's he's teaching Arritavalo is teaching a diploma at the Universidad Complutense de Madrid, and he's got people involved in the in his teaching in his classes that are who are working on raising awareness on Marxist ideas and who are also political activists. You got people like Maxi Nieto who is involved in a in a group I'm also involved with actually called Thipcom uh, who are trying to use Marxist ideas to, to expose the rationality of the capitalist mode of production and trying and we're trying to propose alternatives to overcome it. And I'm sure I'm missing a lot of people people you know, not only in academia, but the activists and, and journalists and people who are who are involved or who are at least partial or who, or who follow some of Marx's ideas. The thing is that it is it is relevant because even though some people have been or there's growing awareness and interest in Marxist ideas, I think that the accusations that uh, Andrew refutes in his book are usually um, I don't know if I will say they're they're not an obstacle to some people being uh, becoming interested in Marx, but they're an obstacle to more people getting interested and getting a, a more solid support for Marxist ideas, because if you have an author that is constantly being accused of being inconsistent, that his ideas are inconsistent, that he's old-fashioned, that he's been overcome, that, yeah, okay, you might get interested in him, but if you only listen to his critics, you probably are not going to pay a lot of attention to what he says. Maybe you'll try to get around that, like some, some people do, and say, hey, this, you know, the, the things that the accusations that they make against him, they are valid and we concede the point, but those those points are not really that important. We can still salvage uh, this or that thing from Marxist ideas. But I think it makes his ideas much more powerful if you show that he's not inconsistent, that if you read him in a way that makes sense of the whole of his whole theoretical project, it makes sense. It is consistent with what he's been saying, and his ideas can be used to criticize capitalism in a way that is much more powerful than if you just, you know, use him for in order to repeat a few slogans or or some catchphrases or you know or for a t-shirt, which is cool. I mean, you, slogans are very important too, and 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 getting people interested at, at the first uh, stages of becoming interested in some of, of, of his ideas are probably you're not going to be. Uh, delving into a lot of theoretical issues, but once you get past that point, if you reach a stage where you everything you read about him is like uh, he was wrong, he he contradicted himself, it's probably going to to either turn you away from him or make you drop some of the key aspects of his ideas. So I think it, uh, the the book reclaiming reivindicando el capital de Marx in Spanish is very important because it takes that the challenge, those myths, those accusations, he faces them head on and just, you know, obliterates them. Yeah. Uh, you know, listening to you sort of talk about the relevance of the book reminds me of my own experience of 
reading Reclaiming Marx's Capital for the first time uh, a while ago now, you know, and my experience of, you know, learning about Marx for the first time was that I was told from the beginning, I remember in school, that there was something internally inconsistent or even wrong with Marx's value theory and mm-hmm. the specific theses of his about exploitation and crisis just couldn't be done within the framework of his value theory. And I was really steered toward all of these um, these correctors of Marx and mm-hmm. their own, with all of them with their own unique reinterpretations. Yeah. And I spent years, you know, sort of going from, from book to book, from different uh, school of thought to the next, trying to sort of wrestle with all these different um, Marxian ideas. Mm-hmm. So when I read Andrew's book, Reclaiming Marx's Capital, for the first time, it was a real eye-opener because I was given permission to like read Marx for himself and not feel like I had to interpret Marx through some some someone who was speaking for Marx and sort of correcting his mistakes. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that Andrew talks about in the book is that the prominence of this myth of inconsistency is really buoyed up by the careerism of the correctors, that everyone... Um, all these Marxist intellectuals, they really based their mm-hmm. academic careers and their, their, their writing careers around their, their own unique corrections of Marx. And this really sustains the whole phenomenon of, of this inability of Marx to, to be allowed to speak for himself. Um, mm-hmm. You do find this, is sim- this sort of careerism is also an issue in, in Spain, in the Spanish-speaking world. You know, are there people that kind of have their own um, thought silos and schools of thought that, that – uh, people gravitate to that are sort of um, presented as corrections of Marx. I'm not that I'm not familiar with any Spanish-speaking authors coming up with corrections for Marx. And from what I've seen, I might be wrong. I might not have read everyone or or, or someone who has done that. But from what I've seen, a lot of people tend to uh, repeat the arguments or the corrections that author that other authors have made. Uh, just you know, translating them or incorporating them into into their own works or whatever. I'm not familiar with any with any one that has come up with uh, a so-called correction of what Marx said on his own, you know. It's all, it's all repeating what American or maybe German authors have come up. Well, fair enough. So, Guillaume, how did you first come across reclaiming Marx's capital? Oh, well, uh, I, I actually first uh, learned about it thanks to Antonio, a co-translator. And at first, I wasn't really that aware of the whole, of the so-called problem of transformation, the controversy over the law, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. All of, the, all of those debates kind of escaped me because I wasn't really that familiar with them. So in a way, it was good because I would say I wasn't that contaminated by the different corrections, you know? So at first I started reading it, and the thing that struck me is that there were some parts I found really accessible. Andrew really, uh, well, he's a professor, so he's used to explaining things in in an accessible way, I guess. And a lot of the the explanations he gives for more more complex uh, points in Marxist theory were very eye-opening. Then I got to some of the parts which were more math-heavy, and I started struggling a bit. So I was like... Like, maybe I won't be able to understand this. Uh, maybe, maybe you know, this is just not for me. Maybe the experts need to sort all of this out. But one of the messages, I guess, that the, that the that goes through the whole book is that 
you should try to i think he actually andrew mentions it at the at the beginning when he mentions when it, i think it was ted mcclone who who asked him why should he need to like wh why do you think there is a problem a transformation problem why and then he says he sat down and started figuring out the the solution he gave he gives in the book and i the message i got from it was that of course you need to to use to rely on the knowledge of people who've come before you but you shouldn't accept stuff that's that's being said just because someone says hey i'm an expert on this if someone is an expert on something i think he should be able to explain that to people and make it accessible and i think that's what andrew does in the book i actually one of the things i did when i was struggling with some of the chapters is that i printed the the translation i was making and i carried it around with a pencil and i kept you know making notes and trying to work out all of the mathematical examples and stuff and eventually it i got it and i eventually understood it well i I must say that I, I also needed a bit of uh, uh, a few clarifications from Andrew. <laughs> I emailed him privately to ask him some of the some of the examples he made. Like I couldn't get my head around, but overall it was very I don't know it was it was a very cool exercise in in seeing that you don't need to take something for granted or or something that is like that because an authority said so. You know. Yeah, you know I'm glad you say that. I think I had a similar experience myself when I read Reclaiming Marx's Capital for the first time. I think probably prior to that, everything I'd read about the transformation problem or Okishio's theorem had just been a summary of the arguments and, and it were not ever actually working, work, walking the reader through the actual math and the assumptions mm -hmm. behind the math. And it was left to uh, the readers just to take the word of experts that Marx was wrong on these points. Um, and even now, looking back, I, I think probably some of these correctors of Marx probably couldn't do the math either, and they <laughs> were just sort of relying on other people's authority. Um, as, but when I read Andrew's book, it was the first time I really felt encouraged to actually, um, you know, not take anything for granted and like work through all of the math examples in the book myself to make sure I really understood them and agreed with them, or even sometimes like you know, create my own reproduction tables with different sets of numbers and make sure I really understood how it all worked and how it would all add up the right way. Um, and yeah. even led me to become, I think, more confident in, in trying to work through math examples and, and other literature that I wouldn't have tried to before in the past, like even things like Ian Stevens, uh, Marx after, after Sarafa and things like that. And then to really start to, start to analyze the, the assumptions behind the, the math. I, I keep reading examples of, of what you mentioned, like uh, authors just assuming that Marx was wrong and just hand-waving it away. Like, uh, I'm working on, on a chapter for a book, and just recently I, I was reading this paper where some guy, I think he was, if I'm not wrong, he was in, sympathetic to the analytical Marxist school. So he was just mentioning how he, the theory of Marx's theory of value was bankrupt. And he just said it like that, you know, he, he didn't even explain. He just said we needed to assume that. Yeah, I think he mentioned some authors like yeah, go read them. If you, but he didn't even explain in a even in a in a single paragraph what mm, was bankrupt about it. You know, so it it's so common. And and then a lot of people might read that. I might read that. I might have read that. You know, years ago and be like, oh yeah, I guess that he couldn't get everything right, which is true. Cool, and I got everything right. Okay, but why is that wrong? <laughs> 
Right. One thing I want to say is, I mean, the, the way that you guys have been raising it, it makes it like, oh, well, Klein is this master expositor, and he has this, like, uncanny ability, uh, unparalleled <laughs> to explain things clearly. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that that's the case. I think most of these people are very bright, and if they wanted to, they could have done at least as good a job as I did. And so I think that one has to ask, why does this stuff again and again come out obscure, abstruse, impossible for lay people to understand you know what is the strategy going on i would say there are a lot of factors in that i mean uh, not to be a functionalist or anything or to resort to conspiracy or whatever but i think that it is probably easier to, to repeat a myth if it helps to avoid conflict i don't know if it makes sense in a way that some of the points marks made that are being considered you know uh, bankrupt or that should be abandoned and stuff really point out to the root of the mode of production production that is capitalism that is riddled with contradictions with conflict with irrationalities and if you're going to point that out it's going to be more difficult to you because you are it's sort of like showing the ugly side you know and if you show not let's say the beautiful side of capitalism but at least it's redeeming face that you know if you if you try to argue okay it's got some of the stuff wrong but it's not really riddled with internal contradictions. It can be tamed. It can have a human face. Like I think it was Sarkozy who said, that we need to have we reinvent capitalism. And, you know, a lot of people might agree with you. So, of course, if, because some of the people do profit from it and some of people are very comfortable with the way things are and they might accept a few changes here and there. They might, you know, they might accept the, the, the general idea of we need reforms, we need to change some stuff because they they're not blind they see some of the very horrible effects that capitalism has but when you point out that yeah those horrible effects uh they in some way they come from the very nature how the way the system operates and unless you change that way that essence unless you get rid of it you're not going to get to do away with the horrible effects then that's that's a very bold thing to say and you know it's and there's a lot of stake there at stake there i think even within the left even within the left you know, if, like if you if you want to to propose minor changes, if you want to reach the institutions, it's difficult to do so. If you keep pointing out, yeah, but the way the, the system works is is wrong in the way it works, not in this in this aspect, in this you know uh, side of it. No, the way it works, it's inner workings. So it makes it easier to to try to sell some hope if you say, no, well, we can change some of it, we can tame it down. And, you know, one of the things that Andrew and I have discussed on this podcast before and in other contexts as well, I'm sure, has just been the the general institutional inertia, especially in the you know academic ins institutions, but just also in the left in general, the inertia to having like a general acceptance of this idea that Marx had a internally consistent, valid theory of value and the capitalism that stands on its own without the need of correctors. Mm -hmm. So much of the left is siloed into these independent um, sort of camps and schools of thought based around sort of uh, these correctors of Marx who, who think they have a better theory than Marx, but still present themselves as the inheritors of Marx. Yeah. Um, and it's been difficult to get uh, some of the, you know, the arguments in this book to, to be accepted by people like that because it's really threatening to their academic careers and to their sort of prestige in the, the left world. I'm curious if you have thoughts about how a book like this might 
um, have an effect on discussions of Marx in Spain and in the Spanish-speaking world, and also, you know, what kind of what strategies or you know what the possibilities for overcoming these sort of institutional and cultural obstacles to the you know, the arguments in the book. Mm, I think that more than changing minds, which I think it can change minds, of course. Um, it, if you, uh, Andrew, gave the, I think, the example of the capital controversy, I think it was, when w one of the sides does accept the, the other side's arguments and they, and they acknowledge that they were wrong. And it's a very honest example of the scientific spirit, which should be to, to try to reach the truth about the matter. Uh, I think that might be difficult if people are very entrenched in some ideas and, I don't know, but uh, I think that the, the the main benefit that the book will bring, I think, is people who are maybe not so invested in in a certain school reading interpretation of Marx to at least have a more, even if even even if it's just a pluralistic approach to the matter, to know that there's another way, you know, another another an interpretation that doesn't need to change stuff. I remember a couple of years ago there was this this debate. I think it was a symposium on the who was. 200 years ago, I think it was the 200th uh, anniversary of the birth of Marx. Uh, the, they had this debate on, on the Universidad Complutense, and you had um, a, a professor there, a lecturer, I think it's in philosophy, uh, who's one of the co-authors of a very influential book on, on Marx's capital in Spain. Uh, his name is Luis Alegre, and he writes a lot of interesting stuff. But in that book, he presents a very particular reading of Marx, and he drops some of the stuff or says that Marx was wrong. Well, you know, the right he was wrong about this and that one of the things the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall well in the symposium he mentions his own book and he says well you know i'm paraphrasing maybe i'm not getting every single word but the gist was there uh every reading every reading of marx finds something that you need to drop that is you know superfluous that that doesn't make sense within the whole thing and our reading only found a few things one of them was the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall and this and that so just a very very, very few minor things. So, yeah, um, uh, and the thing is that it's perfectly legitimate for someone to expose, to, to say, to state that opinion. Okay, but if at least you have a pluralistic approach to the matter and you said there's another interpretation, you can see that that's not true because not every reading needs to drop those so-called, or as he said, minor things or minor points in Marxist theory. There is an interpretation that doesn't need to drop that. If people want to take the other interpretation, want to follow that, well, okay, let's debate about that. But at least the fact that there is a book that shows that you don't need to do that, I think that's that's a good that's a good thing for people who are approaching the matter, you know, who are learning about it. About it. We should say that um, not only were Guillaume and Antonio uh, the translators of the book, but Guillaume was the one who pitched this concept to the publisher in the first place to get this book. Uh, to, to create this Spanish edition of the book. So we're really grateful for all the hard work that's been done for this. It's my understanding this has been a five-year project started in 2015 and just ending here in 2020 um, of working on this book. So it's taken a lot of hard work. And it's not easy to put together a translation of a, a specialist text like this. I know that you know, there was an attempt to get a Spanish edition from an Argentinian group in the past, and that kind of fell through. So... We're glad this this really happened this time. That's always the the, the major problem is uh, for a book like this or, or my or my other book 
getting somebody to translate because you need more than just good knowledge of both languages and good translation skills and good work habits. You, you actually need uh, some expertise you know, and some ability to discern technical stuff here. So getting a translator is, is a big problem. So it, it's been it's been very difficult. I mean, some people, their stuff gets picked up and translated like kind of regularly, e even on the left, e even in so-called Marxist circles. But this kind of thing, no. There are very strong forces that don't want to give up the myth of inconsistency or several related myths. There, there, there are people, really what you were saying, Brendan, there are people whose careers are built on not just that Marx made errors. Why, why would a career be built on that? Well, the career is built on that because you can have your cake and eat it too. On the one hand, Marx made the errors, but we are the inheritors to Marx. I, you know, my approach, my new thing. I can rescue everything. So I'm better than Marx. Follow me. Don't follow Marx. I'm better than Marx, but I do all the stuff that you would want to get from Marx. Okay, that, that, that's the way this works again and again and again. And, you know, if there were no inconsistencies, they would have to invent them. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, and I think that's why your work and the work of the other TSSI folks has been so infuriating to so many of these correctors of Marx. You're really exposing this substitutionism they do when they substitute themselves for Marx and try to speak for Marx and instead saying to people, hey, look, no, Marx has his own thing, which is internally consistent, and you can compare that to, you know, what these other people say, but um, don't let the two be, don't, they'll confuse the two, and that, that really kind of ruins their whole operation, their whole M.O., yeah, yeah and, 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 and their material interest there, I always think of it as, you know, how dare me taking bread out of the mouth of simultaneous children. <laughs> <laughs> In just a few moments, we're going to get into some of the details of, of Reclaiming Marxist Capital, some of the main themes of the book. But first, a few words from Andrew Clard of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors our podcast. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. 
MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So this is a podcast about the Spanish edition of Reclaiming Marxist Capital, but we should probably spend some time just talking about the book in general for those who are not familiar with the arguments in the book. Reclaiming Marxist Capital um, is a refutation of the idea that there is something internally inconsistent with Marx. It spends a lot of time refuting the idea that there is a transformation problem uh, with Marx's value theory. So let's, you know, we can't cover all the details here, but maybe we could at least cover some of the basics. Andrew, do you want to maybe start us off by just explaining to listeners what the transformation problem is and isn't? Sure. Uh, and and in, in fact, this is something that most people get wrong just in terms of historically what the problem is alleged to be. And they, they confuse the properties of what is supposedly Marx's error with properties of the so-called correction of Marx. But let, let me kind of take it from the top. In volume three of Capital, Marx confronts the, the facts of life, the fact that the way the world of appearances works, you know, what we observe, that doesn't conform to the categories and, and concepts of volume one of Capital. So there are the essence categories of volume one and two of Capital. The forms of appearance are different, and Marx gets into that in, in, in volume three. And one thing that's different is, well, in volume one, Marx talks about the, the value is produced and the surplus value is produced and you get the sense of that's what the, the business, you know, captures is the surplus value. It sells the product at its value. But that's not what happens. Firms sell their products at prices that differ from their values uh, and they get correspondingly an amount of profit that differs from the amount of surplus value that uh, is produced in their particular production process. Okay, so at that point you you, you say, well, gee, what, what the hell is left of value theory? You know, we got the value, we got the surplus value, but how can it possibly matter? Because the, the, the prices differ and the, and the profit differs. And what Marx says is, yeah, at the industry level, you know, and at the level of a firm, price differs from the value. The, the profit that they get differs from the surplus value, uh, you know, extracted. But looking at the system as a whole, all those differences cancel out. It's a zero-sum game. You sum up all of the prices, it equals the sum of all of the values. You sum up all of the profits, it equals all the, the sum of the surplus values. So the law of value, the determination of value by labor time, does hold, but not at the level of a firm, not at the level of an industry, but at the level of the, the aggregate, the total economy. Okay? And what Marx basically does is to show how this works at the level of the whole economy, given certain industries, you know, here are their surplus values, here's their their, their values. Okay, here's what the profit's going to be. Here's what the uh, the prices are going to be. Here's the rate of profit. It doesn't change at the level of the economy as a whole. Uh, he shows that for the case in which, you know, it's a special case. It doesn't hold true in reality, but he, he shows this for the special case in which the rate of profit is equalized across sectors. Okay, so, you know, every industry realizes the same rate of profit and the prices it gets are correspondingly prices of production. 
So basically then what Marx is doing is saying here the determination of value by labor time does hold true at the level of the aggregate economy. Okay, that's the that's the upshot of, of, of his transformation. Okay. He he refers to the transformation of commodity values into prices of production. So he's he's talking about a, a transformation in the way these things appear in the real world as opposed to how they, you know, uh, operate on a more stark theoretical level. That's the transformation. Okay, so from the start, the moment this was published, there were all these criticisms of what he was doing. Uh, and the, probably the most famous one was by uh, Vladislav von Borgievich right at the turn of, or maybe 1907. Yeah. Uh, and he alleged that the transformation procedure, you know, or example, so to speak, the, the way that Marx said this operated is internally contradictory because it would lead to a spurious breakdown of the economy. In other words, if you imagine that the economy was like in a steady state, also known as simple reproduction, if the commodities were to sell at their values, then the moment that they don't sell at their values, but they sell at prices of production that allow an equal rate of profit to happen, the, the, the economy would just go out of whack. There, there would not be a balance. There would be, you know, shortages here and there excesses there. So he says, you know, I've, I proved that Marx was guilty of internal contradiction and in a companion paper... Uh, von Portkevich says, okay, here's how you have to correct Marx. The problem is that when he changed the outputs from being priced at their values to being priced at prices of production, he, he didn't transform also the inputs. You know, in other words, the, uh, the means of production and so forth that were used as, to produce the stuff, Marx was assuming that uh, those were purchased at their values instead of at their prices of production. And you got to do both sides, the inputs and the outputs, transform them both into prices of production. Well, the problem is when you do that, you sever. If everything, if, if, if everything is such that there's, you know, values of inputs, values of outputs, and a separate prices of inputs and prices of outputs, you've just rendered two separate systems that have no relationship to one another. That's what you've got there. And as a result, uh, in this alleged correction by Borkevich, that was his term, uh, in this alleged correction, Marx's basic uh, results just no longer hold true. But that's a property not of any proof of Borkevich, that, that's a property of his so-called correction, okay? So, you know, in other words, for instance, you can, by fiat, declare that the sum of values equals the sum of prices, but then, you know, the rate of profit does not get preserved as you move from values to prices, and the total surplus value doesn't reappear as total profit, uh, or, or, or something like that. So, basically, in the so-called corrections, the, the law of value, the determination of labor time goes out the window. And so, the whole issue is, did Marx, so to speak, forget to transform the inputs? Do the inputs need to be transformed? And that's just been taken as given, you know. When, when I started all of this, this was like, you know, this was taken to be gospel truth. That was 1986. I, I think it's still taken to be gospel truth in some quarters. Marx forgot to transform the inputs. You have to transform the inputs. And they just don't want to give, the, give that up. But it's 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 nonsense. And the reason, the reason it's nonsense is because, if, if you remember in this whole story, Borkevich claims to prove that we would involve ourselves in internal contradictions by having the, the transformation work the way Marx said. The specific internal contradiction is you would get a breakdown of the economy that's a spurious breakdown. Well, in, in 1986, I showed that that's not true. 
and I've showed it again and again and again. Uh, it's very easy to show. It's in the book. Uh, you know, there are a few other examples floating around, but yeah. Uh, the, the basic thing is the, the the outputs of one production period, or let's say one year, don't have to have the same prices as the inputs at the beginning of the year. So it doesn't matter whether, you know, the the, the inputs sold for these prices or that prices, um, these prices or those prices. The, every Everything can be bought and sold at its prices. The markets can clear. There's no breakdown in reproduction as long as you're not trying to make the outputs of the period sell, you know, for the prices of, of the uh, beginning of that period. The outputs of, at the end of a period exchange right at that moment, they become the inputs of, of the next period. You know, so I, I, I recognize that kind of like immediately dawned on me in, in March of 1986, or maybe it was January of 1986. It was, it was early on and that's it. That, there, there's nothing to correct. There's no spurious breakdown, nothing to correct. And, you know, Marx might be right, he might be wrong, but there's no internal inconsistency in what he did with the transformation. So Reclaiming Marx's Capital is a book about the temporal single system interpretation or the TSSI, um, and which is a school of thought that you've been involved with for decades now, which has tried to refute these myths of internal inconsistency in Marx's value theory. We should go through for listeners what those three terms, temporal, single system, and interpretation mean. Um, let's start with interpretation. Why is the TSSI called an interpretation? This is hugely important in my mind because too much, way too much of so-called Marxist economics and related stuff is built on people hawking their approaches. And here's my approach and here's the other one's approach. And what happens then is Marx drops off the map. You know, he's just not there anymore. And the TSSI has done a really good job at damaging the allegations of internal inconsistency. And as a result, what the, the, the opponents of it have more and more tried to emphasize is that they have a better approach than the TSSI approach. But this is just phony. It's it's an invalid comparison because the TSSI is actually an interpretation, an exegetical interpretation. It stands or falls with how well it makes the text make sense, which is the, the job of an exegetical interpretation. If if it makes text make sense, then whether you, you, you like it as a way of doing uh, economics, whether you can open your cans with it, polish your floors, none of that matters. Its job is to make text make sense. There are these other interpretations out there, their interpretations, their approaches, their, their whatever they are. But the point is, insofar as there are claims that Marx did this, it was internally inconsistent and not, those claims need to be evaluated in terms of, are these true or are these not true? Does the text need to be read in a way in which Marx turns out to be internally inconsistent or there is there a different way? to do it. So I, I really insist that, that, that this is an interpretation because it really is phony to try to turn this into an approach, you know, and well, you know, this is Kleiman's view and this is the way, you know, Alan Freeman and, you know, this is the way, this is what they like to emphasize. None of that is, is, is what's really going on. What is really going on is an invasion of a very simple question. Did Marx make these 
errors? Did he commit these internal contradictions? So there's a, obviously, with all of these uh, allegations, there's a discrepancy between what Marx says and what the, you know, the critics say. But the question is, whose fault is that? Is that Marx's fault? Is that present in his actual text, the problem? Or is the contradiction between what he said and what they come up with, is the contradiction due to the failings of their interpretation? So I want to hold their, their, their feet to fire on the fact that they have an obligation to interpret the text, okay? Because they are making claims. When you say it's internally inconsistent, you are making claims about what's actually in the text. And look, you have to prove it. And they, I, I think it's absolutely undeniable now they haven't proven a thing. Well, that's very clear. So why temporal and why single system? Okay, temporal. Well, it, it, for anybody who heard the, the, the rap about von Borkiewicz, one way of understanding the weirdness of, of his correction uh, and the weirdness of his attempt to try to prove Marx internally inconsistent is that Borkiewicz was alleging that the problem came because the prices of the outputs at the end of a period differed from the prices of the inputs at the beginning of the period. So you, you might have coal. Coal, you know, in the economy is used as an input to fire up furnaces. Coal is also an output of the coal industry. And, you know, you get at the beginning of the period, coal is bought as an input to fire up furnaces at a price of six. And at the end of the period, coal is mined and the, the price is 650. And in, in Borkevich's rendition, oh, this is an internal contradiction or it leads to internal contradiction. You can't have that. The prices of the coal at the beginning of the period have to equal the price of the coal at the end of the period, you know, per unit, you know, per pound of coal, per ton of coal, whatever it might be. Uh, and that, that's not true. So um, the temporality consists of the simple idea, and it's a fact, that the prices of inputs at the beginning of a period differ. They can differ, they do differ from the prices of the same thing uh, later on uh, at the end of the same period. Okay? That That's like not a feature of standard Marxian economics, and that's not a feature of these so-called corrections of Marx. It is a feature of the real world. It's clearly a feature of the way Marx understood the economy and, and, and theorized about it. Okay, so it all comes down to do the prices of inputs per unit have to equal the prices of outputs? That's what temporal was all about. Temporalists, we say, no, they don't have to be equal. The simultaneists, they do various things, but the, the way they do it, uh, the upshot is always, yes, the prices of the inputs have to, for this or that reason, equal the prices of the outputs, even though they, they know they're not making a claim that's true to the, the real world. And then the term single system refers to the fact that in Borkovich's correction, um, he because he values everything simultaneously, inputs and outputs at the same time, that renders the breaks uh, into two different systems, one of prices and values that can't be reconciled. Whereas if you consider things temporally, uh, as input and output prices not having to uh, be the same, then you can speak of values and prices in one system. Right. That has to do, uh, you know, with Borkevich saying that uh, you got to transform the inputs. So you've got uh, the, the outputs selling at prices that differ from values. The inputs got to sell the same prices that different values. So you end up with one system of prices as for inputs equal the prices of the outputs. Another system, values of the inputs equal the value of the outputs. Those are your two systems, your price system, your value system. And that, that's what causes, you know, Marx's results not to hold 
hold true is that you've just created a new so-called price system where it has no relationship to production of value, the law of value, or anything else. It's actually a very simple uh, issue. Um, well, once you no longer force the prices of the inputs to equal the prices of the outputs, uh, you don't have to, you know, sever the economy into two discordant systems that have nothing to do with one another. And the result of that is that, you know, uh, the internal inconsistency of the law of value and all of this apparent stuff, that, that all goes away. So, Andrew, your book, Reclaiming Marxist Capital, also challenges this popular notion that there is something internally inconsistent or wrong with Marx's theory of crisis, his theory of the law of the tendential fall and the rate of profit. And, you know, applying a similar set of tools and logic, you um, deconstruct that claim and argue that, there, that there's nothing wrong with the way Marx theorizes the long-term fall in the rate of profit. Do you want to go into that here? Right. What what happened is relatively shortly after I, along with Ted McLone, you know, discovered that there was a way of reading Marx that eliminated the internal inconsistency, the apparent internal inconsistency uh, in his account of the transformation from values to prices of production. Uh, shortly after that, I, I just took a look at the Okishio theorem, a theorem by the uh, late Japanese uh, Marxist economist Nobuo Okishio, which was held to have proven that, you know, Marx made an error or, or was internally inconsistent in his um, law, Marx's law of the tendential fall in the rate of profit, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. And, you know, you get uh, in Okishio, just like with Bortkevich, a correction. Uh, and, you know, when Okishio corrects Marx, lo and behold, it is no longer possible for the rate of profit to fall for the reason that Marx stated, not if uh, the rate of profit it is equalized uh, beforehand and re-equalized later on, uh, and the the capitalists who invest in new technologies, you know, mechanized labor-saving technologies, if they're concerned to be profit maximizers, you know, under those conditions, it is not possible, according to Okishio, according to his model, it is not possible for the new labor-saving technology to cause the rate of profit to fall. Okay, so that's incredibly devastating to first. First of all, the law of the potential fall, fall in the rate of profit, but to Marx's theory of capitalist crisis, the, the notion that the, these crises are in some senses inevitable, a lot of issues like that. Well, lo and behold, the problem with what Okishio did is the same problem with what Berkevich did and the same problem that they all do. They force the inputs to be priced at the same prices of the, as the outputs that later emerge. And in the case of the Okishio theorem, it's even more weird because here we're not just talking about one period, but we're talking about like, you know, you might have be producing bricks, let's say. You've got, you got a, an enterprise, they produce bricks. And how do they produce bricks? Well, they got a brickworks, you know, so they got like a factory and it's made out of bricks. And they invested in the bricks, oh, 30 years ago and they're producing bricks today. Well, the way the Okishio theorem tries to understand the economy and the rate of profit and the size of the rate of profit is, oh, well, the price of the bricks 30 years ago when 
and you invested $10,000, okay, well, we wiped that out because that $10,000 was based on a price of 10 cents per brick. Well, nowadays, bricks are 14 cents per brick. So we got to revalue the, 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 the investment that you made 30 years ago at today's price. Well, yeah, you know, that rate of profit, so-called, is not going to fall where you've retroactively revalued the investment at the, the end of the period prices of today. That's not going to fall due to technological change. But that's not what people mean by a rate of profit. It's not what business people mean. It's not what the financial community means. It's not what Marx meant. It's not a rate of profit. A rate of profit is profit as a percentage of the actual amount of money that was invested in the past. So you're comparing something selling today at today's prices with an investment, you know, where you purchased uh, means of production and, uh, you know, constructed uh, factories, whatever, way back in the past, based on the past price. So it's, it's absolutely fatal, but it's also totally nuts to, when you think about the determination of the rate of profit, to think of, of, of revaluing an investment. It's, it's, like, it's like polishing the polish. You know, the investment is what it was. You, you, you can't change the, the fact of, you know, how much money was committed and comparing profit to that. You, you, can, look at, you can look at some other thing, like what would be the profit today if we were to reinvest today? That's maybe an interesting uh, question, but it's not the, the thing that Marx was talking about when he talked about the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. He was talking about profit today as a percentage of the actual amount of funds invested in the past. So in other words, his account, oh, it always was, his account was temporal, not simultaneous. It was not forcing the prices of the inputs to equal the prices of the outputs of the same period. Well, I think that's a pretty good summary. Uh, if you haven't read the book and you want to know more, of course, you should check out Reclaiming Marxist Capital, now available in Spanish. Uh, speaking of Spanish, maybe we should give Guillaume the last word here since he is our guest. Guillaume, do you think there's an audience for this book outside of the academy? I kind of hinted at that before. I think that, that, well, there are, of course, two views. If you think that Marx and Marxism and the theories and, and interpretations and whatever about Marx are something that is purely intellectual or something that is, you know, good to, I guess, to build a career on or to debate, fine, then, yeah, then this book and all the books about Marx are only to be read by academics. But if you think that Marxist ideas have, have to do with political, social, economical activity, with activism, with conflict, then this book and anything that deals with it, with the topic of Marxist ideas and his theories, it should not be restricted to academy. Like the, the what I was saying, I think, at the beginning, is that the cool thing that this book manages to do is to not to rescue because I don't think it needed to be rescued just to dispel the myths that sort of tamed made Marx's theoretical project harmless you know what I mean that made it possible to be something that you can implement in you know in a in a program where you say okay yeah capitalism has some features that are bad but you know it's it's cool overall it's something that can be corrected and this book manages to dispel the myths that that sustain that that discourse so i think that if you are going to engage in activism that goes to the root of the problems uh, i think it is very good to read this book and to know that there is no need to to subscribe to Marx in a very you know vague general way to say yeah well he got some of the stuff wrong but we 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 can be inspired by his ideals or by his 
his slogans. No, you can be sure that there is an interpretation that looks at what he said, reads him and says, yeah, it makes sense. And it makes sense in a way that is not compatible with capitalism. And it's funny because, um, I don't know, well, sure, you're following the, the, the protests uh, about the, the murder of uh, George Floyd. Even if Marx's ideas or the whole theoretical project should be, must be linked to everyday practice. And, and even if it's the spirit of protesting, of not going down to, to authority and to be, uh, you know, to be subservient and to just carry on with how capitalism uh, produces its harmful effects, that is very much present. Um, I think it's all very related to, in a way, to what the book uh, is offending. Well, Guillaume, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for pursuing the translation from the beginning to the conclusion, to the, <laughs> pu public, the actual publication uh, of the Spanish edition. Mm -hmm. It was um, a pleasure. I, for a very, very long time. I've, I've given up hope that uh, <laughs> we're, we're actually going to be able to change um, the state of radical academia, especially Marxian so-called economics. But... You know, at least there's a legacy so, yeah, yeah. left uh, for the future. Well, that's all the time we have on this episode of Radio Free Humanity. You can hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity on MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. If you like the podcast, please do consider uh, leaving us a comment. You can rate the podcast, subscribe to it. You can spread it around on social media and tell all your friends and enemies. We hope to hear from you.